I don't know if you've seen the YouTube video. It's of this little girl. She's with her mom. She's little. She's like two years old. They're at the park. They're feeding birds or pigeons or whatever. And her mom was holding out some bread in the palm of her hand. And the bird grabs it, but the little girl takes exception to the way the, the bird is acting. So she grabs the bird, snatches the bread out of its beak, and puts it in her own mouth. And the whole thing happens so quickly. Her mom doesn't even realize it. And, of course, she's responding and reacting. It's pretty hilarious. It's worth checking out. I don't know. You'd search for, like, little girl pigeon bread eats bird food. I don't know. Throw those things in your YouTube search engine, and I'm sure you'll find it. Today, I'm trying to respond to a question that has been cropping up recently over the last few years. The question basically is, why do I still call myself a Christian? Why do I still identify as a Christian? And the truth is there are days when I'm reluctant to do so because of all the baggage associated with the term Christian or Christianity. You know, whether the baggage is political, like, you know, if you're a Christian, then you have to vote in a particular way, which we've all heard people try to take that stance. At the end of the day, it's absurd because uh, you can use your Christianity as justification to vote in a lot of different ways whether you're liberal or conservative or socialist or capitalist or, you know, on and on and on. So I stay away from the term because of that. I stay away from it sometimes because of the over-commodification of the word. We've turned Christian into an adjective and put it in the front of things. Like, for example, well, I only listen to Christian music, (laughs) whatever that means. I mean, I think I know what it means. Like the Christian radio station might... I, I don't know if this is true, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if they had some kind of policy where where Jesus had to be mentioned like seven times in the span of a three-and-a-half-minute song in order for it to be deemed to be Christian. I don't think that that's what means something is Christian. And it doesn't make sense anyhow, as if the people only listening to Christian music, do they only go to Christian bankers or Christian grocery stores? Do they only wear, like, Christian shoes made by Christian cobblers, is that who makes shoes? Cobblers? Christian shoemakers? It's all a bit crazy, isn't it? So I tend to stay away from it. I tend to identify as a person who pursues love or follows after the way of Jesus. And then if someone seems open and receptive, then we talk more about Jesus. We talk more about Christianity. But but I'm not particularly worried about the term. I don't think words and terms save us. I'm willing to let go of that stuff. On the other hand, in the spirit of that little girl who grabs that bird and takes the bread back for herself, there's a piece of me that's being animated by that same energy. As I think about people from a different paradigm, an old paradigm, that's taking the bread and running away with it. Uh, and, And I'm thinking in terms of people who think of love as violent and sacrificial, though, of course, no one's, no one stands up and says that. But it's a love that's built upon a theology that says that God needed Jesus to die and to sacrifice in order for him to forgive. So it is built on that. It's built on exclusionary thinking, trying to get people in so that they're not outside, which I think is problematic because what that really reveals is that we are people who are not dependent upon God. We're dependent upon the other person because if someone else is outside, that we can call ourselves on the inside. So when I think about all of that, then yeah, there's a piece of me that's like, you know what? 
that group, you, you don't get to just use Christianity for yourself. It's not proprietary to you. I know that you were taught and conditioned to think that the gospel was a particular way, this small, particular American Christianized Western view. But it's so much bigger than that, so much more expansive and richer and deeper. And so if I'm going to keep the term, I have to kind of redefine it and reapproach it. But that's what this episode is about. I do think in the end that there is still a lot of great reasons. And I can't even list them all. It would take too long. But there's some really good reasons why I still identify as a Christian. Thank you for the music. That helps me transition into telling you about Patreon. If you haven't had an opportunity to check that out, it's patreon.com backslash Jonathan underscore Foster. Would love to have you a part of that community. I've already been sharing some new writing with those folks and inviting them into a Zoom group that I'm doing. You could jump in on all of that too. You don't have to. There's no pressure and we can still be friends either way. It's cool. But if you want to check that out, you can. I encourage you to do so. There's some good stuff there. All right. Why do I still identify as a Christian? First reason is pretty quick. Because honestly, my family was Christian. That was my context. And so that's just the way that it was in my life. My dad said, be a Christian. And in my household, you pretty much did what your dad said. I'm not saying my interactions with God over the years haven't been authentic, but the truth is I really some days don't know where my desire to please my dad began and where my authentic interaction with God ended. I'm not particularly concerned about that at this point. If I had grown up in a loving Jewish, Hindu, or Muslim family, I'd probably be doing a podcast right now talking to you about why I still identify as a Jew or a Hindu or a Muslim. But my context was Christianity. That's how it started, and that's what got me into this thing. And I'm good with that. I'm, I'm thankful for that because people give you what you need, and it is what I have needed over the years. Of course, the shadow side of that statement is people also give you what you don't need. And I want to be intellectually honest about this. I realize now that the faith that I inherited from my family, and not always specifically from my mom or my dad, though sometimes they pass this down too. But now I'm beginning to speak of a wider church, Americanized Christian context. But the faith I inherited was sacrificial driven. It was dualistic, like spirit was better than matter. In the end, it was fear driven. I hate to say that, but it's true. There was so much talk about hell and about fear. And it was really dependent more upon others and the behavior of others than it was of God. And so in many respects, it turned into just a religion of behavior modification. If you can do these things and not these things, then you will be called holy and therefore God will like you. So I'm now working into the second reason that I'm now a Christian. So my first was because my context was, which was good because it gave me some stuff I needed, but bad because it gave me some stuff I didn't need. And my second reason I'm a Christian now is because I recognize the thing I didn't need was, a, was yet another system, a divine system in this case, justified spiritually, biblically, by God and by the church, another system that encouraged me to scapegoat. 
because I see now that this, this Hebrew man, Yeshua, who lived a couple of thousand years ago, when he steps into our sacrificial surrogate victimizing scapegoating system, he's revealing our obsession with it. He's revealing our tendency, more than our tendency, he's revealing the primary way that humanity has dealt with their violence. And that is by assuming that the gods need a sacrifice. And so he becomes in solidarity with the victim. He becomes the scapegoat, but it's not because God needs scapegoats. He becomes a scapegoat to end all the scapegoating. He becomes a sacrifice to end all the sacrificing. And I talk about this in other episodes. And if you read any of this stuff that I write, I talk about this all the time. But all of this is wholly built upon Rene Girard and his mimetic theory. Just three quick things. Uh, the first is built on desire. In other words, we don't, we don't know what we desire. We really desire what the other person desires. But they don't know what they desire. So they desire what the next person desires. And so all of us are clamoring for the objects that each of us desire. And as we do, conflict arises. And then we draw family and friends and church and community and nations into the conflict. Conflict rises. And that's the second piece of it. The third piece is really um, proprietary to Girardian thinking. And that is that we devise this ingenious way to offload our violence, to process our violence, if you, if you will. And that is through this idea of scapegoating. So we, we turn, instead of going to blows, we turn to the person next to us and we say, oh, it's his fault or it's her fault. And what this allows us to do is to channel our violence onto them. That person becomes a conduit. And so now the community is saved. It's, it's a bit cathartic. It's like this movement of violence sweeps from us onto that other person, and we kill them, exclude them, lynch them, throw them in the volcano, hang them on a tree, you know, hang them up on a cross, whatever the case might be. And as we do that, we're saved. That act of violence saves us. I'm a Christian now because I see Jesus not reinforcing that system, but rather subverting that whole system. And so he steps into it and he says, look, to be a person who follows after love, you don't just you don't just become the salve to heal the wound that is caused by the wheel of injustice, to borrow from Bonhoeffer. You actually become the spoke inserted into the wheel of injustice itself. And he turns the whole thing upside down. And I find that movement challenging and compelling and really it critiques the way I want to live and the systems that we've created and it helps me see that the only way to really receive forgiveness is to offer forgiveness to others, is to not assume, well, that our victims are guilty. And so as I do that, as I love my neighbor, even people who are different than me, even people who disagree with me, I'm experiencing love for myself. And I'm not inspired to sacrifice them. And I'm not inspired to sacrifice for God. So the second reason that I'm a Christian is because I see in Yeshua the Christ this really healthy pattern of refusing to project all of his fears onto others and then to punish them. And I want to be that kind of person. I want to be the kind of person who doesn't project all of my fears on others and punish them. I want to own my issues, deal with my issues, love, love myself, recognize God loves me, and then love others. And the truth is, I don't know, I don't think that's a linear process. 
God loves me. I love myself. I love others. I think it's nonlinear. I don't know which of those comes first. But the point is, Jesus gives us a way out of all of that. Speaking of scapegoating people and punishing them, I'm a Christian now because, believe it or not, I actually think Christianity can redeem all of our misdirected thinking about that ultimate place of kicking people out. That's right, hell. I think Christianity can redeem hell. Now, I don't have a definitive position. My church doesn't have a a definitive position on hell, which is good, because neither the early creeds nor the Bible has a definitive position on hell, contrary to popular belief. But it's definitely something that has informed the way and influenced the way Western Christianity has come about. And I don't know all the things that have played into that, but kind of the way I'm seeing it now is that You know, you and I here in the 21st century, we are on the receiving end of a couple of thousand years of teaching brought to us, you know, initiated and propagated by theologians and teachers and pastors and leaders who were predominantly, by the way, uh, white, affluent, heterosexual males. So we're on the receiving end of teaching coming from these people. and, And many of them were brilliant men. I'm not saying they weren't unintelligent. Some of them were great, but they also had a lot of guilt and a lot of shame and had a lot of, I think at this point, and by the way, I'm not making this up. There are other people who think these kinds of things as well. I think they imported a lot of their guilt and shame into their teaching. So whether it's someone like Augustine or Luther or Calvin or fast forwarding into Jonathan Edwards, and oh, don't forget the indelible burn mark left by Dante's Divine Comedy, pun intended on the burn mark there. So whether you're talking about these guys or or others, I think what happened is that their misunderstandings about guilt and shame often played into ours and resonated with all of our misunderstanding about guilt and shame. And so their fear became our fear. And I'm not saying that everything they wrote or talked about had to do with fear. But when you begin to peel away the layers... Most of it, in fact, I'm going to go ahead and say all of it is actually built on the fear of hell. So all their fear resonated with all of our all of our fear. This is deeply problematic because God is love. I don't think the point is to put us into a state where we are fearful. I think love is the only thing that opens up creativity. It's the only thing that invites forgiveness and grace and mercy into our world. There's a place for fear in certain instances. But at the end of the day, that's not what I'm going for, and that's not the best way to become human. That's not the best way to please God. Fear is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the middle, and it's not the end of wisdom. This whole thing is going somewhere, and where it's going is love. And so I've, I finally, at this point, I realized, oh, gosh, these people are trying to be biblical by believing in this literal fire, hell, where God tortures his children forever. I think it's biblical to push back on all of that, actually. I mean, Peter said he's not willing that anyone should perish. Paul said he doesn't count our transgressions against us. John said he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but he came to save the world. Not to mention Jesus who said, love your enemies. And the question begs to be asked, if God tells us to love our enemies, why doesn't he love his enemies? I mean, if he gets to punish people, what? 
Why don't I get to punish people? So there's a lot of misguided, misdirected thinking. I think all of this teaching has played upon the fact that psychologically we're fear-averse people, which is basically a concept that just means that we are more motivated by losing things than by gaining things. And some of it makes sense because of the way that we've evolved and you know, the very real fears that exist in this world, it's important to be fearful at times when you're crossing a street or when you're at the edge of a mountain or any number of things that are like that. But day to day, humanity doesn't have to deal with those things, the majority of us, as much as we used to. But we're still so fear adverse that it locks down our thinking. And so I think because of that and because of our willingness to scapegoat and because of violence and because of all this fear, we've evolved into this religious sect that just builds everything on the idea of hell. And I don't think it's biblical. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it has anything to do with love. And I suppose the thing that's influenced me more than anything else is having kids myself. So when I think about torturing my kid for even one second, I think that's absurd. And if I think that, how much more does God think that? And I've used this illustration before, but if you and I get to that place in that next dimension that we identify as heaven, assuming that you and I are going to get to that spot, let's just say that we're there, we identify it as heaven, and in that moment, as we're I don't know what we're doing. We got robes on, playing harps. Uh, we're worshiping God. And in that moment, we recognize that some of my family members are in the place that we would identify as hell. I'm sorry, despite a couple of thousand years of teaching by the church, which predominantly told me that in that moment, that if I realized that others were in hell, that I would glorify God all the more, that I would praise God all the more, that I would see the justice and all that. I just don't think that's true. That just doesn't ring true to me. So if we get to that space, I'm going to lay the harp down. I'm going to dismiss myself from the group. And as for me, I'm going to go to that place that we identify as hell to find my family members. Why would I do that? I would, I would only do that because of love. And if I would do that, how much more will love do that? I, for the life of me, can't figure out why it's the Christians who are so hell-bent on saying, nope, you got this one chance, and if you don't pray this prayer just right and think these things just right, you know, have the right orthodoxy, then you're going to burn in hell forever. It makes no sense. Aren't we the people who are supposed to be about grace and love and second chances and third chances and fourth chances? Well, where does all that come from? It comes from a God of love who will go to the greatest lengths to find his kids. Well, actually, if the story is true, we believe that's already happened. Because when Jesus descended into death, he was going to the most God-forsaken place in the universe. I'm not even sure it's appropriate to call it God-forsaken, because how does, a, how does a space even exist without God? But that aside, if there ever was, there now no longer is because Jesus went to the most God-forsaken place in the cosmos when he descended into death and he redeems death from the inside out. So I see the movement of love as never stopping, never ending, constantly redeeming. And I think a healthy concept of Christianity can redeem all of our obsession with fear and punishment and hell. I don't know what kind of music one plays to transition out of talking about hell, but that's what we went with there. 
All right, reason number four. I'm a Christian because it provides a framework to process suffering. It doesn't fix suffering. It doesn't give a complete answer. I don't think a complete answer exists. But I do think a healthy view of Christianity, if we unpack it in a healthy way, it can at least give us a framework to process the suffering. I don't think this in a normal kind of Christian way where you hear people talk about, well, yeah, you know, God is in control and everything happens for a purpose. I don't think God does capital C control. I think that control is antithetical to love. And I don't think there are purposes for some of the really bad and evil things that have happened in your life. I don't think everything happens for a reason as much as when you're in the middle of the really difficult things that may come up in life, you can find a reason to move forward. Ultimately, I don't really even think we need protection from all of our problems. Though, for sure, I want to protect us from the kinds of abhorrent evil that exists in our world. But I'm not even sure sometimes we need ultimate protection from some of it because really it's going to happen anyhow. And chaos and indeterminacy and all the mystery of life is going to bring both good and bad. So what I really think we kind of need is a way into our problems so that they can be redeemed from the inside out. What we find is a way into the problem helps us to see a solution. So to insulate ourselves from problems, you know, to try to, to wall ourselves off and stay protected would be to insulate ourselves from the solution. I see the solutions as being right in the middle of the problems. So if you're a part of a religious movement that's constantly telling you to suppress your issues or to ignore your issues or to just be an overcomer or to suck it up or pull yourself up by the bootstraps or any number of other religious cliched things, I would see that as a sign that that's an unhealthy religious system. I think the healthiest religious systems, whether they're Christian or not, are those that allow you to have intellectual honesty about your problems and to be able to enter into them and work on them from the inside out. And to see, you know, in our context as, as Christians, and to see that God is with you in the middle of that. And I see that kind of movement in the life of Jesus. It's this movement further and further into all the problematic areas, but constantly trusting God, constantly trusting God. And uh, the cycle keeps coming back around where God helps, God helps, God saves, God brings redemption. I would imagine that a lot of atheists turn from Christianity because they haven't heard of this kind of talk from Christians. It's always the, you know, God is in control and God is powerful and turns into this big robotic, robotic, deterministic kind of universe. And so the atheist turns from God, and that is their prerogative. The problem is ignoring God doesn't do anything about suffering. So suffering exists whether you believe in God or not. Suffering exists where you believe in, whether you believe in love or not. Having said that, I'm more sympathetic to the atheist than I am of most Christians who just can't help themselves and they want to explain evil away as if evil can be explained away. I mean, think about it. If evil and suffering could be explained, they wouldn't be evil or suffering. It reminds me of Job. I mean, Job's friends gave him every reason in the book for why evil existed. They began to just lay into Job and give him reason after reason why he was suffering. And, and all of the reasons had to do with the fact that Job messed up somewhere. 
but the story is unrelenting. You don't really understand the story of Job unless you read the first few verses where it says, emphatically, Job was a righteous person. In other words, Job didn't do anything that caused all of the suffering that he experienced. And, and so Job never really bought into what his friends were saying. And personally, I'd kind of like to be like Job. So I don't give in to all the simplistic explanations of evil either. I mean, God doesn't even explain evil. He shows up at the end of 40-some chapters of Job. And he doesn't explain himself. He just kind of shows up into the story. And it's true in other biblical stories as well. And it's true in our lives as well. He shows up again and again. He shows up in the person of Jesus. And Jesus is God with us. And what I take away from all of that is, as I approach suffering and go through suffering, there aren't really solutions. But what I have is a God who's interested in solidarity. I don't have solutions, but I do have solidarity. And I think that's worth everything. We need solidarity. We're built to be motivated to go through life only in solidarity with others. I mean, our best stories have to do with solidarity, with connection, with friendship. I mean, you got Frodo and his fellowship with the rings. You got Luke and Chewie and Yoda. Who else? You got Dora and her talking backpack. It's all about solidarity. In each of those stories, there's a moment where the protagonist is overwhelmed with all of the issues. And yet they decide in some like turn of the story to go ahead and to pursue the problem. And they always do it with a group of friends. They always do it in solidarity with others. It's not as if they have the solution, but they do have solidarity. And I think solidarity can redeem just about anything. And then when I think about God and solidarity with us, I actually think it will redeem anything and everything. Now, I don't have proof, but, but Christianity gives me a way to enter into the suffering. It gives me a framework to be intellectually honest about it, not to deny it. I mean, it gives me a way to process it, which leads me to the fifth thing. The fifth reason that I identify as a Christian is that all of this gives me hope. I need hope. If it's true that Jesus goes into the very worst space and redeems it from the inside out, then it's true that God can make the best come out of the worst. And I need that. And I think that was the mission of Jesus, was to show us that. I don't think the mission was to get us off the hook, you know, like a banker goes, you know, like a, I don't know, a financial person goes to the bank and says, you know, I know my friend has this huge debt, but I'm going to pay it for him. And the bank is reluctant to do it. But finally, because this banking person they're working with, you know, is, is credible, decides to go ahead and forgive the debt and let this person pay it off. I, I don't think that's the scenario. Because in that scenario, it puts Jesus and God at odds. I don't think they were at odds. I think God has always been the same. It's always been about love. And so the movement of Jesus isn't to get us off the hook economically or legally per se. The movement was to help us escape our fear of death. And if you read Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, it'll just confirm that. That was the mission to help us see that we don't have to cower living by fear of death. What's Eugene Peterson say? Scared to death of death in his paraphrase of Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. So death doesn't have the last word. 
If the story is true, if the story is true, then everything is being made new. Peter Kreef told me a long time ago, as the baby is in the womb and the womb is inside the world, so we are inside the world and the world is inside of heaven. So death isn't an ending. It's actually a contraction into this whole new reality. Everything is being made new. It's like 5A for me, if we're listing out the reasons why I'm a Christian. 5 is hope, but 5A is I have hope because everything is being made new. It's worth everything to me. And it's interesting to note that in the movement of Jesus in his life, he's not being like diminished. It's not like he is being reduced into um, this murky milieu of oceanic oneness with everything. When he comes back from the other side of the grave, he is actually still full on his own person. There's still this relationship with everything going on around him for sure, but he's more fully alive and more fully gracious and joyful and even more forgiving than he was before. And I think that's really interesting. It's not like his individual entity of the person of Jesus was being diminished. It's like he was being made new into a newer person, you might say. And that means a lot to me because I recognize that nothing ever stays the same. Nothing does. Cells are dying and birthing. Your heart is beating. Relationships are morphing. Waves are crashing up on the shore. The gravitational pull of the moon, for crying out loud. Planets are orbiting. Universe is expanding. <laughs> on and on. It's overwhelming change. But the story of someone who embodied love and wisdom, like this Hebrew man did at the turn of the century, who followed it through to the end and then beyond and came out the other side a more alive, fuller, better, gracious, forgiving, joyful human. I mean, there's great beauty in all of that. The movement, the way he transitioned and trusted God. And I want to be like Jesus. I want to become more of who I am, not just lost. I want to become fuller in all of this. It's like after the resurrection, he's a 3D person living in a 2D world. And maybe that's the way it is with all of us who choose to walk by the light of the resurrection. A person who forgives, who's patient, who's growing in love and knowledge, who refuses to scapegoat, who refuses to cower to the powers. I mean, that's a 3D person. That's a 3D person living in a 2D world. Of course, 3D people will usually get expelled by the systems of the 2D people, which cycles us back to the scapegoating conversation. And it cycles us on to more difficult things that, you know, I'll probably name in some other episodes. But the point here is everything being made new recognizes the overwhelming reality that everything is passing away. But someone's gone through it. They've gone through it for us, and they're going through it with us. And it, that someone could be a model for me. So in all of this, it's positive mimesis. It's me deciding that Jesus is the one that I want to be my model and not the person next to me in that sense. It gives me hope, and it's a major reason why I'm a Christian. I mean, it's a fraction of the reasons. You throw in the thoughts about suffering and hell and scapegoating and my family context, and, well, there you have it. That's why still, here in the 21st century, I identify as a Christian. And the tradition that handed all of this down to me, 
the tradition that told me that this person, Yeshua, was the Christ, they for sure, in my opinion, have messed up a lot of things. But I think they got this part right. As I reflect upon it, I think the part about Yeshua being the Christ is correct. And I think following after his way gives me the best option to live a full, healthy, robust life. The way just seems better. The way of forgiving just seems better than the way of bitterness. The way of grace just seems better than the way of continually being boxed in by these black and white rules. The way of giving just seems better than being stingy. It's just a better way to live. So these are the current reasons I'm grateful to call myself a Christian. I recognize none of these would have probably made the normal Christian list. Actually, almost none of them can even be processed in that way in the normal Christian list, because sadly, it's not on most people's radar at all. So that's why I'm still grabbing the bird, taking the bread out of the beak and saying, no, 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 there's other ways to look at this thing. Just slow down. And that's why I'm a Christian. Now, it may change in a few years. It's true. Life evolves and things shift. But that's the basic gist of it for now. I suppose if you check back in a couple of years, I'll have it all figured out. Well, that's not even true, is it? Because stuff will have changed by them, and we never quite arrive. I love that line from one of my favorite theologians, Catherine Keller. She says, we're, we're not looking for complete understanding. We're looking for incomplete ignorance. And so may you have incomplete ignorance. As you reapproach and re-identify and rename the reasons why you identify as a Christian. All right, I'll catch you next time. Take care, everyone.